entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Listening to Wake Up Hollywood with Nikki Corula and Eddie Pence, right here on LA Talk Radio. Hollywood, this is your host with the most, Nikki Carula. Eddie Pence is, I think he's working on a film tonight, or he's going to some premiere of a film he worked on. But he'll be back here next week. We're going to jump right in. We got our special guest. He just arrived. Filmmaker, producer, Mike Dorsey. Say hello, Mike. Hey, how you doing? Yeah. Our studio audience loves you already. So we are going to just blow people's minds right now. We are going to drop... The Gauntlet. Let's talk about this first movie. We're going to talk about two or three tonight. But um, let's just jump right in. You basically worked on a documentary and you co-produced a movie called... A series, yeah. A, ser- a t- TV series. How, yeah. many, how many episodes was it? Eight uh, episodes? Unsolved was ten episodes. And, and this then, is, um, and this is uh, basically a biopic on the, the um, dynamics of everything you could imagine... That has to do with Tupac Shakur's murder and Biggie Small's murder. Right. How did you get involved with this? Let's start with that right away. Sure, sure. So um, back around uh, 2012, I came across a book called Murder Rap that was all about um, this lead detective who had worked a task force for the LAPD from 2008 to 2010 or so. He, um, they basically solved both murders. And Which the public is, is totally not aware of. Right, most people are not aware of that. And um, he, because of that, because the public wasn't aware of it, he then went public. Uh, he retired in 2010 and wrote a book in 2011 and uh, exposing you know everything that they had found. So that's when I found out about him was in 2012. So I just contacted him. I said, do you want to make a documentary about this? And wow. he was like, yeah, I've been dying to. So he sent me a copy of the book and said, read it. And if you still want to do it, let's do it. Um, so uh, his name was Greg Kading, and uh, I read the book and was even more intrigued. So we spent yeah. the next, like, two and a half, almost three years making a documentary about all of it. And did he tell you, like, crazy stuff? Like, there must have been amazing <laughs> conversations that you just oh, yeah. had on camera and off camera about the situation. Uh, absolutely. I mean, he took um, a bunch of the case files with him when he retired, which uh, detectives often do, kind of like their, their big cases or maybe the cases they didn't solve or just their kind of most high-profile cases. Um, so he took a bunch of case files with him. So, you know, I had pretty much full access to those uh, when I made my documentary. That is wild. Uh, including, you know, tape police interviews with people going back, you know, f- 10, 15 years. So, um, but the cornerstone of the whole thing was <clears throat> they were they managed to get confessions to both Tupac's murder and Biggie's murder. Well, let's start with Tupac's so, murder. <laughs> sure. um, just give us a couple details that the public kind of needs to know about because this has just turned into the most fascinating <laughs> interview ever, man. This is crazy. Yeah, it's, it's wild. So what happened was they, his goal was... Going way back, um, the original detective, that one of the original detectives that worked the Biggie case back in 97, uh, his name was Russell Poole, and he developed this theory that cops, LAPD cops, dirty cops, had killed Biggie. Right. And that's kind of, that for a long time, that was the prevailing theory, because he, he just, like kind of like hating, he went public with his theory. Uh, he quit the force, and, you know, he was upset, and then he went to the LA Times and everybody else that would listen, and he wrote a book and all this stuff. So... What that all led to was Biggie's mother and, and his estate suing the LAPD in the city of Los Angeles for like $400 million. Wow. Which was estimated to be Biggie's lifetime earning potential. Uh, so that case wandered through the courts for years, and it wasn't going away. So finally, um, that case, you know, that, that whole theory had been investigated by LAPD. It had been investigated by internal affairs. Yeah, internal affairs. It had been investigated by the FBI. And they'd, none of them had found anything that could, they could take any action on. There just wasn't anything to it. Right. But a civil 
court is a much easier, a much lower threshold for proof than a criminal court. And you could definitely lose, you know, like O.J. Simpson was found not guilty of murder in criminal court, but then lost the civil suit for the same thing to the Goldman's family, you know. So the city of L.A. is like, look, we know we didn't do this, but how do we prove that our guys didn't do this? The best way is let's just reopen the case. Let's fund it properly and let's wherever it leads, let's get to the bottom of it. So that's when Greg Kading was brought in. Um, he started a task force, and or was he joined a task force, which he ultimately took over, and um, he federalized it. So we had the FBI and the ATF and DEA, and they had you know the sheriff's department and all these people working on it because they didn't want it to be an LAPD only investigation. Because right, then it's, it's like, corrupt. oh, you're just yeah, you're just clearing yourself. That and also he wanted all the resources that you would right. get. You know, then if you got the feds involved, then you can go after people for RICO right. laws, and you can use the DEA to go at people for drug trafficking, um, which he knew probably they were going to be dealing with that those types of, of elements. In Did he have any theory going into it, or was he just like, let's figure this out? I, I think they... Like the public, I think they kind of lean toward Poole's theory just because that's most of what they had heard at that point. Um, but as soon as they started going through the case files and talking to people, it was pre- it was clear very early on that his, his theory was based on um, it was extremely cherry-picked evidence. Mm. I mean, you know, a jailhouse snitch who, you know, gave a whole entire interview and literally none of his interview matched any of the case, but he dropped one name that they linked to somebody that then linked to somebody that he built, you know, that that became the evidence. And so long as you ignored 99.9% of everything else this guy said. Right. That didn't, you know, it was that kind of stuff, you know. So they they discounted Poole's theory pretty quickly. And their focus was Biggie's murder, but they knew, recognized early on, that probably Tupac's murder was connected. Right. Because they happened six months apart. And it was always the theory that Biggie's murder was retaliation for Tupac's murder. Right. So they zeroed in on a guy named Keefy D. He was uh, an alleged uh, shot caller for a gang called the Southside Crips, who just happened to be rivals of the gang allegedly associated with Death Row, the Mob Pyrus. So they knew that he was suspected to have been at the Peterson Museum the night that Biggie died, and he was suspected to have been in Vegas the night that Tupac died. Wow. And most importantly, I think he was the uncle of Orlando Anderson. Orlando Anderson was the guy that Tupac and Death Row stomped on video at right. the MGM Grand the night that Tupac died, just two hours. And a lot of people had always suspected that Orlando Anderson was the shooter because it was, it was retaliation. Right. You know, Orlando Anderson is a, an alleged gang member and, and killer himself already, and and Tupac walks up and punches him in the face, and then Tupac's dead two hours later, it's kind of obvious right. that that must be what happened. So this guy, Keefy D, was also that guy's uncle. So That is wild. They just knew he knew something, but when they went after him, I think they thought they were leaning more towards he may have had something to do with Biggie's murder. And so... Now, is that was that, you know, that scuffle with Tupac and mm-hmm. Orlando, is that his name? Orlando Anderson, yeah. Orlando Anderson. Was that because Tupac was jumped in the studio? That Was that unrelated? No. Um, well, how did that even come about? <laughs> What's wild is, you know, Tupac didn't even know really what Orlando Anderson looked like, supposedly, until that moment. What had happened was there was another guy um, who was an alleged, you know, gang associate there. Uh, his name is Trayvon Lane. Uh, he had been jumped by Orlando Anderson and some other members of the Southside Crips a few weeks or months earlier uh, back in L.A., or the L.A. area, and they had tried to get his his death row medallion off of him because wow. supposedly there was a bounty being offered on those. And so they tried to get his medallion off him. They tried to get his MOB, his Mob Pyro ring off of him, and uh, he ultimately fought them off, but everybody knew that that had happened. Right. And so, and it's their gang rival. So Tupac knows that happened. You'd obviously, Trayvon and all his buddies know that happened, and then I think essentially it was decided, look, next time we see that guy, Orlando Anderson, it's on. And they were there for the fight. There everybody was, fight, was just right? there in Vegas for fight night. Yeah, it was yeah. Tyson. That's right. And everybody, would, even if you didn't have tickets, you went up there just to party. Right. You know, hang out in the bars or whatever. It was just a huge party weekend. So nobody going to Vegas that weekend is thinking, we're going to go look for trouble. Right. It just happens to be that when they all emptied out of that arena after Tyson knocked the guy out in like a minute and something, that they, they spotted Orlando Anderson. And they were like, there he is right there. And the story is that, you know, Tupac just took off after the guy. Maybe to prove himself, 
right. you know, to, 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 to his own boys really, or whatever yeah. else. Exactly, yeah. Because um, he was a very loyal guy, and he just ran up and just punched the guy, punched Orlando Anderson in the face. And then the rest of his entourage caught up with him, and then, you know, there was the big beatdown. And right. if you look on YouTube, there's a bunch of uploads of that video. Yeah, it's in a hotel security lobby, video. right? It's in the, the elevator lobby at the MGM Grand, yeah. Wow. And you can watch him, you know, stop Orlando Anderson down, and then they take off. And then he called his uncle and talked to him about this. And yeah, so, you know, Orlando Anderson's uncle and a bunch of his other friends were already there. Right. And supposedly what had happened was some of them didn't have tickets to the fight, so they were just in the bars. Other ones, like Orlando and his uncle, they had scalp tickets. Um, supposedly there was a Rolling 60s crypt that always had, like, the ticket hookup that right. they would connect with and get the tickets. And because they were scalped there in different areas of the arena, so it was like, look, when the arena lets out, meet us back at the food court at the MGM we'll all meet up there again so that supposedly is where Orlando was on his way back to when this all happened so Orlando gets stomped now he's talking to the police and security somebody goes and tells his uncle hey they just stomped on your nephew and it's like well go get him so they get him back and then allegedly they begin then planning but it happened two hours two hours later how did they even track him so everybody knew um, a bunch of people knew that night that Tupac was performing at Club 662 which was Suge's club off the strip uh, it was on the radio, and supposedly one of the guys in their group was just like, I know where he's going to be. He's going to be at Club 662 tonight. Wow. So they supposedly went to Club 662, waited around. It took Tupac and them a while to get there, so they weren't showing up. Some of the other blood gang members that are working security there start noticing them sitting in the parking lot. They're like, we got to get out of here. So they gave up at that point. Um, and that's pretty much where the, the, the video that I sent you picks up at well let's let's play that should we play that here so just so you know what this is that they ultimately got um they got keefe on a big drug sting and they um they were able to do what's called a proffer deal with him which is where he confesses he can confess to pretty much anything and he'll have immunity in so much that his words can't be used against him um and so that's what this is this is him telling them what happened that all right we're gonna we're gonna play this right now here it comes I wonder if you want to read that text. I don't know if you can see the video. Keefe D claims that the girls who are riding alongside Tupac and Suge Knight are what drew their attention to the BMW. They're screaming out his name, Tupac, Tupac. She was like, there's Suge, Suge. And then he was like, come on, come go with me. Come go with us. We're going to 662. The bros. Tupac, Tupac. We like, there they go. We had a U-turn. We wasn't supposed to make a U-turn. Just wanted a U-turn. It was in the middle lane. We just pulled up on the side, checked every car to see where they was. So what directed your attention to him was some girl shouting at Tupac? Tupac! He gave himself away. Otherwise, they would have got away. Due to traffic conditions and the configuration of Suge and Tupac's caravan, the white Cadillac is forced to pull up on the right side of their BMW. I thought he was going to pull on my side. You know, that's my little nephew. I'm going to look out for him, you know. And he, he pulled off on his side. So you were gonna, you were fitting a blast if you had to, or you were just yeah. If we would have been on my side, I would have blasted. Okay. Keefe D, who's seated in the right front passenger seat of the white Cadillac and who has the gun, realizes that he's not going to be in a position to shoot because he's going to have to shoot across the car and across the face of his driver. Keefe D turns around to hand the gun to the back seat, attempting to give it to DeAndre Smith, who would be in the best position to shoot. DeAndre resists, puts his hand up, and says, nah, no thanks, not me. I gave it to Dre, and Dre was like, no, no. And Lane's like, dude, pop dude. Orlando Anderson, who's in the right rear passenger, reaches forward and says, give me that motherfucker. Leans over DeAndre Smith out the pack window of the Cadillac and begins shooting rapidly into the BMW. So Orlando shot him across Dre? He leaned over on the window, around the window, pop. So Orlando would have had to lean over the top of uh, Dre, right? Yeah, okay. he did. Um, you say Shug looks over, he sees you? Yeah. He looks right at you? Yeah, he looks at me. Okay. Why are you looking right at me? Fuck, is it the only telephone we were sending later or not? 
Backing up Kifidi's claim that he and Knight knew each other was a witness who was in Las Vegas, part of the death row entourage who was present during the shooting of Tupac Shakur, who said that Knight stated he knew who the shooters were and that they were Southside Crips. I seen a bullet going shoot again. I thought he was dead. I thought he was dead. So Tupac's trying to jump in the back seat. And what's she doing? Just ducking? Ducking. He couldn't really duck because he was too big. Yeah. Keefe D has now identified his own nephew as the murderer of Tupac Shakur. Holy cow. That is intense. Yeah. Wow. How is that not all over <laughs> social media and in the yeah. public eye? Um, you know, when, when it came out, we got some good press. Um, Huffington Post wrote a big article about it, and that, uh, that ended up on their, their main page. It started out on their entertainment page, ended up on their main page. It was like the second headlight down that day. It was their second most read article that day, and that blew up You know, in the media. We ended up getting dozens and dozens of major press as a result of that and that was uh 2015 and early 2016 that all happened and then you know just people were on to the next thing um but luckily yeah but luckily what what that led to was um it got the attention of uh of a producer named kyle long who i think may have already known about the book also and uh he decided to develop a scripted series based on it and that became unsolved uh, which aired on USA Network this year. That had to be such a rush <laughs> just to be able to see something like that. That was amazing. Like, yeah, I mean that goes so far beyond your wildest expectations when you make a documentary that a story is going to become something that big. Right. And a major actor like Josh Demel is going to be playing, you know, Greg Cading, you know, your your buddy, that, you know, that you made this film with, and uh, you're shooting on Universal Studio lot and these sound stages, and it's, it was uh, it was a really really incredible experience. That's, yeah. That's insane. Yeah. And did they change anything from the book or from the documentary, or did they try to stay right on, the, you know, the path of the, what the story actually is? They were really, really committed to sticking to as much historical accuracy as they could. You know, you always have to do a little bit of time compression, and you always have to do some characters or kind of amalgamations of others. Like, you know, I think Greg's task force was like at least a dozen plus people, and it was more like four people in the show because they just couldn't have that many characters. Right. But, I mean, they did, they were super committed to getting as much details right as they could. You know, you're taking three years of their investigation, plus they also covered Poole's investigation a decade earlier, plus there was biographical stu- a bunch of biographical scenes in there with Tupac and Biggie and how their f- friendship formed. Right. You know, you're, com- you're compressing that down into, you know, 10 hours. So. Now, do they show the actual shooting in... They do, yeah. Wow. They, they show both shootings very, in, I mean, extreme detail. You, and it's, they really nailed how it, was, how it went down, how, how it happened. Yeah. That is crazy. Um, and they reenacted both shootings at the exact intersections where they happened. You know, wow. Tupac's there at the intersection of Koval and Flamingo in Vegas. In Vegas and, right. uh, and then Fairfax and Wilshire there in L.A. for Biggie. Let's play a little trailer from this. This is Murder Rap. This was on the USA Network, and it was an eight-part series. Oh, uh, no, this is Unsolved. It was on... The Unsolved. U- yeah, right. yeah, Unsolved. That was, it was a ten-part series. Okay. And it drops on Netflix International in like a, a week worldwide, and then it'll be on Netflix you know, in, in the U.S. Pretty I can't wait to watch yeah. this. Okay, here it is. Here it is. The murders of rap superstars Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls have been the subject of exhaustive investigations, relentless speculation, and a web of conspiracy theories and dark secrets. Now, for the first time, this is the riveting account of the task force that finally exposed the shocking truth behind the deaths of these two rap music icons including interviews with detectives and witnesses never heard from before. With shocking evidence sourced from hundreds of police case files. That was Tupac. That was Tupac. I know he got shot. I know he got shot. Who besides yourself down there knows, uh, for a while, knows about these guys killing Tupac? Pretty sure everybody around there knows about it. In a tape confession never before shown on film. Which of those four is it when you talk to them about murdering Tupac? Like, man, I'll shit out. We'll wipe the ass out quick. You know, it's nothing. Yeah, we, we, we want a million. I see you, motherfucking car! I 
like BMW, like getting your car. Yeah. We're man shot in our car right now. And I ever told nobody that story, man. Murder Rap. Inside the Biggie and Tupac Murders. Coming soon. Damn, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so that was the murder app, the documentary that I, that I made. But yeah, that's all of it. And there's a great quote in there, if you caught it, kind of in the middle where the guy, um, they said, who who around there knows about these guys killing Tupac? Right, pretty much that. everybody around there knew about that. And that's, I think, the big takeaway from this is that uh, in Compton, on the streets, in the neighborhoods they there, knew. everybody knew that weekend. They knew really? within days that and just nobody did said it. anything. Yeah, street code. You know, and, don't and, snitch, and, and we'll, we'll handle still, it our way. They're still walking freely. Uh, well, both shooters, uh, Tupac and Biggie's murderers, are are dead now. Um, Orlando Anderson, uh, the alleged well, killer. I, guess I was of, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the alleged killer of Tupac, Orlando Anderson, was killed about I think about nineteen or twenty months later, and it's a completely unrelated thing. And then um, the the alleged killer of Biggie was killed in I think two thousand three. Well, let's talk a little bit about Biggie's death. Sure. So tell me what you what was the most fascinating part of learning how that whole thing went down. So what what they did was they um they kind of cleared this guy Keefe D of having any involvement in Biggie's murder and there's some people that still believe that they you know his gang may have been involved with both um i don't really subscribe to that but what this investigation found was they um they zeroed in on a guy a gang member named poochie and he um was supposedly you know one of these kind of death row inner circle gang member guys kind of an well you know some an enforcer kind of guy and the allegation that they found was that that he had done it and that um uh, an ex-girlfriend of suge knight allegedly uh, then confessed uh, to her involvement in that, um, in the same way, they kind of got her jammed up with something, and were like, look. And what they did was they wrote a fake confession letter, or they made a ruse, where um, it's even though by this point Poochie was dead, they made a confession letter like he had given it to an, his lawyer. You know, should anything happen? Right. And so they said, look, we found this confession letter. It names you as being involved. This is what happened. And really, it was just their theory at that point of what they thought had happened. And she then read it and started crying, confirmed, yeah, this is how it happened. Wow. So that's, and that is allegedly so. And, and Poochie, you know, since then I've talked to people that know Poochie. I know at least one person has confirmed that, you know, he, he did have an Impala, like the one that the killer drove. This person rode around in it multiple times and was even more convinced that Poochie was Biggie's killer than he was that Orlando Anderson was Tupac's killer. Wow. So. That yeah. is crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, like, is there a reason why... The investigations were just kind of duped for so many years. Yeah, I think you know, uh, in the case of Tupac's murder, the big thing was that the best witnesses who knew who dis- who did this, they were um, you know they all abide by the street code, and you don't cooperate with the police. So if Vegas ran into a wall. Um, they're dealing with gang members in another city that they aren't right. familiar with. They don't right. know who these guys are. They don't know who the gangs are. You know what right. I mean? They're relying on Compton PD to tell them who everybody is. Compton PD is hearing all these rumors and their confidential informants which are telling them, yeah, we know who did it. This is who, it was Orlando Anderson and Southside Grips. But Vegas has to trust that information. And Vegas goes out to interview these guys. None of them will talk to him. So I think that was the big problem with Tupac's murder was just his closest friends wouldn't. Even wouldn't cooperate. Right. They wanted to handle things on the streets. And I think from a perspective of law enforcement, they're like, look, if a person's friends won't even help us solve this, and, you know, they're probably getting leaned on at that time. You know, Vegas, was be- it's a transition into a family-friendly place. You know what right. I mean? You got the pirate shows going on and the volcano. And, right. You know what I mean? Right. It was like it was kind of like becoming almost Disney-fied. It's not a place where gang murders happen. And I think there may have been – it was just a combination of factors my clear mind is thing. already <laughs> my mind is already blown. I yeah. mean, this is great. It's like clear this case fast right. or just get rid of it. Right. You know, and then it's like, yeah, his friends won't help us. We we can't build a case. It's it just got shelved. So when you're making your documentary, are you just kind of in mm-hmm. awe of all of these circumstances and this information and this evidence? Yeah. You're you've got hands you're like hands on it. Yeah, you know and it I mean? took it took I mean it took us almost three years to make it and that's why, because there was so much evidence to go through. Wow. Just trying to pick out yeah, how did you pick and choose parts for that and, process? Um, it was just, a, it, I mean, the first cut of the movie, you know, is like 
45 minutes, an hour too long, and then you just start to whittle it down. And I would screen it for friends of mine in the business who would tell me, okay, here's where you're repeating yourself, right. or here's where I'm getting lost in the order of things. And it was just trial and error, trial and error until you got something that was coherent. You know, it can make sense out of 2,500 documents and, you know, over 100 hours of interview tapes. So then fast forward to the series, the 10-part series we yeah. made. Did they omit anything that you felt like, oh, I really wish this was in there? Or do they no. really keep everything in honor, kind of the most important parts of what your documentary they, showed? They hit the most important parts, and, and they even went into, you know, um, an area that I, I don't like to talk about that often, but that was, you know, the, the alleged connections with, with Bad Boy Records and, you know, their whole potential involvement. In and everybody was just washing their hands clean of it, right? But, I mean, they they went there, though. The series went there. Wow. They went, they, you know, and I think, you know, they told, like they told the network and everybody involved, we, we told you up front, this is where this is going to go. So when you get the script <laughs> for that episode right. or those episodes, like don't balk at us, you know, where this is where, this is where the story goes. That is just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. And do you know of anybody like P. Diddy or anybody associated like Suge Knight? Do you know if mm-hmm. any of those guys were able to see this? Uh, I heard that Puff was watching Unsolved as it was kind of airing right. um, and I heard you know I heard he, I heard that he was watching it I heard through people that Valletta Wallace Biggie's mom was right. watching it um, and I think they did such a great job portraying Biggie like truthfully and they got this amazing actor uh, Wavy Jones to play him and uh, Mark Rose uh, actor to play Tupac who was Tupac in uh, Straight Outta Compton Right. they got these amazing actors and they just they treated them so fairly and I feel like portrayed them in such a positive light that I, I think that that kind of one even maybe what it would have been our harshest critics, I think, kind of came around to, okay, they put you know they put the effort into this. And were you a fan of the music? Is that what drew you to the story? The with all the drama, or I'm a fan. I wouldn't call myself like a hip hop head, right? But um, but yeah, it was I'm, the drama. I'm, yeah, it was the drama, of it. and and I, I like Hollywood history and I like true crime. So whenever those two things intersect, you know, I'm, I'm I right cannot. There. I mean, I <laughs> honestly, it, I cannot even tell you. How much I'm excited to watch your documentary. Yeah. How excited I am to watch Thanks. Unsolved. Um, let's move to you. Have another project that you've been working on, or you just finished, right? Demon House, right? Yeah. So um, I got brought into Demon House. Uh, Demon House is a paranormal documentary. Uh, I did not make it. I'm not the filmmaker of it. Uh, that came through my agent, who also is the agent of uh, Zach Bagans. Okay. And Zach Bagans is the the host and you know pr- executive producer of Ghost Adventures on Travel Channel. Yeah. Um, so he, what he did was he came across this haunting story. Um, it was so wild in, in, in Gary, Indiana, that he, he didn't want it to just be another episode of his show. He wanted to make his own separate thing, which is how he got into the whole ghost hunting world to begin with. He made a documentary, his own ghost hunting documentary, and that got him ghost adventures. Wow. So I think he was kind of going back to his roots. I'm going to make my own documentary again, separate from my TV show, and knock this out of the park. Uh, and then just everything went wrong with it. And wow. it ended up kind of on a shelf, and he didn't know what to do with it. And that's when my agent got involved and was like, well, you know, I know a doc filmmaker that's good at making sense out of, you know, really complicated stories yeah. and kind of streamlining them and figuring out how to put it all together. And so, you know, to Zach's credit, he didn't know me, and he just sent me all, like, 14 terabytes of wow video files and was like good luck and, and you, you know, just he went and through I, the whole thing and yeah just, it was wow. a it was a close collab we took about six months you know him and i collaborating over the phone mainly and email over the you know the edits and what parts were important and um and the end result was just came out so great uh I, there was a mystery in it and i think every story right. every good story should have a mystery in it even if it's a romantic comedy there should right. be some mysterious element to it yeah there was like a mystery investigation aspect to this story that i thought was really interesting even if you, you don't really buy the ghost haunting right. stuff you're not a believer in that it's still an interesting story and that's what we really drilled down into is him as an investigator trying to figure out what's happening and then you know him and his own crew starting to become affected by what they were after um, and it ends up playing you know I, I told him when I first watched it, I said you have a you have like a found footage horror film here except your footage is real it's not yeah. faked to look like home video footage like you, your footage is the actual stuff and so let's and you saw the footage that way. yeah yeah, that yeah. is wild. Yeah. And how did you choose what to put in this movie? Um, I, I honestly it was just what was the most exciting to me, you know. And with documentaries, a lot of times it's just are you repeating yourself? Right. Uh, we've already covered this. Throw it out. 
it does it's just it's very similar to writing a script does this scene run into the next scene or can or does it stand on its own and you can just throw it out because it doesn't really relate to things documentaries happen yeah. to be some of my favorite mm-hmm. types of film yeah there's um, so many great we're in like a golden age of documentaries I, right now best. too <laughs> it's the best and whether it's music or it could be you know um sleep deprivation or like world hunger whatever it is i love the amount of organized factual information yeah. that they present in showing you an opinion that is unbiased mm-hmm. and also shows you like okay here's a direction that you can go in or here's a direction you can go and make up your own mind right so how did you get into the love of wanting to be a documentarian i kind of fell into it i mean i came to la to direct and um you know, you can start making a documentary right now, like this moment. You can pick your phone up and start filming, and you're you're documenting. Right. You know, whereas a scripted film, there's so much more that goes into it. It's generally much more expensive to make, and you got to get the actors together, and it's got to be filmed a certain way, and it's just it's a lot more work. You if you just sit home and write scripts, you know, the odds that you're going to get something made is very slim. Right. Whereas you have an editing bay and a camera, you can start making a documentary tonight. Well, so. it's also like you need the footage. For, uh-huh. You have to have a kind of like some sort of scope or yeah. interest in it. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, I mean, know that when you set out to make a, any kind of film, if it's not something you're passionate about, you're going to hate yourself because you're right. going to be working on it for at least a year and a half to two years. And, and were you a believer in any of the paranormal? Not really. Okay. Not really. I mean, I would say I'm agnostic to it. Right. You know, I'm open to it, but I'm not like a believer either. Did this convince you one way or the other? No, I'm still I'm I'm still in the middle. You know what I mean? There's explainable things and unexplainable things in it, right. in my opinion. Right. You know. So, so. when you but having seen the raw footage, I would say there are things in it that I can't you like explain how, I that don't I, know how to explain I you know that. that I know weren't faked because I watched the raw footage that I don't I don't know. That yeah, is I don't know wild. How that yeah. So when you're taking this 14 terabytes of <laughs> footage and information. How did you kind of um, objectively watch this and know what to cut and what to kind of – how to direct it, you know, the I mean, story? A lot of it was input from Zach himself, and um, he was really great to work with, and he's a filmmaker at heart, so he kind of knew. He is a, Obviously, he's been producing his TV show for like a decade now, so he's an expert himself in the entertainment world and right. what makes a good story you know so a lot of it was informed by him and then I would find stuff I'd be like hey because he'd had you know an editor or two work on it before me and there were all these scenes that they had cut out that they were still sitting in the you know on the project that I could go look at it's like hey you cut this scene out what about this or you know I think we can move this out and he had his own ideas about which direction it could go so it was just and do you do all your own editing or do yeah. you have an editor too yeah yeah I think as a documentary filmmaker you really need to do your editing I, I don't like the old school way of the director sitting over the editor's shoulder and right. telling him it's also extremely expensive right so and it's you also, gotta pay you know, a guy to do it you, you know you're in it that's yeah. what I like about you know uh, directors that actually edit their own pieces because a lot of times there are so many movies that are made where the editor actually directed the movie in a lot of ways yeah. you know what I mean like exactly they make the choices that's right uh, you know or the you know the order of how to tell the story yeah I think documentaries like are 90% directed in the edit bay so when you don't right. You know, I just interviewed to to um, work on another doc, and they wanted to do the kind of old school way. And like, and, no and, thanks. Yeah, they're <laughs> like, oh, so you'll be, you know, it's going to actually be edited in another city, and you'll just get notes. You'll just send us notes on, you know, the edits that you receive. And I'm like, that's not how I, that's right. not how I work, man. I got to sit down and at three o'clock in the morning, I'm still right. like just going over the footage over and over and over again to figure out exactly how, you know, it should be put in there. And I, I'm such a like a film <laughs> buff and. You know, one thing that I think about whenever I watch a documentary, I always go to Sundance. We, the, the, my band plays at Sundance oh, awesome, every year, yeah. so I always hit up a lot of the documentaries when I'm there. Mm-hmm. And it, what totally fascinates me is how a filmmaker knows when it's finished. Yeah, you know, because I went through an experience just making a music video that was four minutes long, and we had four cameras or five cameras, and I went through all the footage, and it was just like this moment where it was like. It comes together, but I was just wondering and kind of mind, like mind, you know, just perplexed about how a director knows for a two-hour or a ninety-minute feature how you know that it's finished. It's just it's a thing that comes with experience. You know, um, when you're first starting out, I think you're kind of so enamored with all your footage and everything that right. early, you, you know, cram first timers, yeah, they have films that are way too long and right. drag and because they just don't want to cut anything. Right. A friend of mine has a, a terrible expression for it, but it's uh, it's common in the industry called killing your babies. And that's the, the cutting away process right. of, oh, man, I love this scene so much. But in the long run, it really doesn't. 
is really not necessary. So do I really need that three minutes extra in my film? Get get rid of it. And I used to hate that process, but the more I get into it, now and the more easier. films I made, I love it now because I know I'm making the film better. Right. When I do that. And it's also like your instincts. Like this is what I've learned with music. Your instincts just get sharper. Right. So you just know like, okay, this is where I see where the old me would probably let that stay. And mm-hmm. the, the new me is, you know, going to cut that with, with you know, no attachment to it. You know? Yeah. And there's also a lot of power in trying to get yourself to be objective. And that comes from walking away for a week or two. Right. And then you come back and watch, and you're like, oh, this is awful. <laughs> Stuff you thought was great, you really, you're much more objective now. You're not emotionally attached to it like you were right. when you were cutting it. And you can see what's terrible and, what it, and what's working. And uh, you studied yeah. film at ASU, correct? No, I went to business school at ASU. Oh, okay. Yeah, I never, I, I didn't do a day of film school. So what was the moment of Zen for you that made you want to be a filmmaker? Well, I went to ASU, I went to business school, um, which, to be perfectly honest with you, I advise, if you want to be a filmmaker, business school I think is just as important if not more so than going to an actual well, film school. It makes you understand the market. It's, well and also because most of filmmaking the, the most of the actual work of filmmaking is logistics mm-hmm. budgets right working being a professional you know all that getting people to trust you making presentations right. all that stuff you know um, it, with the artistic stuff you can learn on your own if you need to or you can learn on the job. So then um, you were just making movies on the side? Yeah, so I graduated, and uh, I, I was, I was going to go into advertising. I wanted to be creative. I just didn't know what I could make a living at being right, creative. Right. And so I was like, oh, I'll be a copywriter, a creative director. I'll be like a madman you know, before that was a show. But that's basically what I wanted to be. And then I realized that advertising for me was really just an excuse to try to get into filmmaking. So right. I was like, well, why don't I just try to be a filmmaker? So I started making films in Phoenix. When did you have that moment? <laughs> I went to a uh, I went to a high school friend's wedding in Colorado, and a girl that I'd gone to high school with who was a really great actress. Um, we connected, and she said that she'd just been in a movie. And I went, and I'm like, you're in Colorado Springs. They're making this is 2000 like one, right? You're like, like they're making they movies in, in Colorado Springs, and she's like, oh yeah, it's digital now. You can make movies anywhere. And I was like, I wonder if they're making movies in Phoenix, right? And I went back, and literally, like, a few days later, I'm driving down the freeway in Phoenix, and a DJ comes on, and it's like, it was like a PSA. They're like, hey, these people are making a movie, and they need extras. Dial this, you know, call this number, and you can, and I, like, pulled over to the side of the freeway, and I wrote the number down, and I called it, and it was this little indie romantic comedy was being shot there, and I went down, and, uh... I got there and I saw their equipment and all their crew members and they had all these extras. They were filming in the baseball stadium. And I was like, wow, look at all this stuff. Like everybody knows what they're supposed to do. And right. so I started asking questions to this assistant director and him and his wife were the assist, first AD and the second AD. And uh, I asked so many questions. Finally, they were just like, dude, just we're really, we're really <laughs> busy right now. They're like, can you come back in a couple of days? We need more extras and we won't right. be as crazy. We don't have like 500 people like we have right, right now. And I was like, okay. So I came back with a friend of mine, and he recognized the director. He had spoken at, like, a film appreciation class at ASU. And I was like, oh, we got an in then. We went over and talked to the director. And he's like, uh, we're like, how, how, I wanted to know, like, where'd you get your crew? Where'd you get your equipment? Right. Are there other people making movies right now that we could go, like, work with? And he was like, what are you guys doing today? And we're like, this. And he's like, okay, you guys are production assistants. <laughs> he gave us badges. And, like, we're about to have. That's amazing. We're about to have lunch catered by Olive Garden. I was like, I've made it. <laughs> like, Olive Garden catering? Are you kidding me? Like, Huge. Like, that's it. Yeah. And uh, and then I remember sitting down for lunch there with our little Olive Garden, and the assistant director guy came over to me and he's like, "Hey, my wife and I bought a camera, uh, video camera, and we're going to shoot a you know a professional one, and we're going to shoot our own short film when this is over, and we're recruiting people to help us. You know, it's not paid, but just everybody is going to be learning what they're doing." I was like, "Yeah, I want to do that," and that's wow. When worked on his short, story. and then a few that's months great. later, I made my first short using his equipment, and uh, like a year, year and a half later, I moved to LA. So that's. And now let's talk about you're actually making another comedic short right now, right? Yeah, I just made um, – I, I kind of took a break from scripted – making my own scripted things because I was so dedicated to making docs. And uh, I wanted to come back, and I really want to do more scripted directing. So, you know, the only way to really get that going is you need to have good, really high-quality examples of your work. Right. Um, you need to have examples of your work that, like – you don't have to be in the room when it's being screened to right. be like, uh, yeah, I made this with my friends and we didn't have any money. And right. we, but here, here it is. It's just got to be like, here it is, dude. This is the best I can do with full resources. So I put a lot of money into it. I treated it like a, like a thesis film if I had been a film student. Right. You know, 15 years ago. And um, I've got Jamie McShane, great actor. He was in, uh, well, I know him from Unsolved, but he was in uh, Sons of Anarchy. He was in, he's in Bosch. He's in uh, uh, Bloodline. Uh, really, really great actor um he agreed to be my lead in it and uh, david ficus 
who you I know. Went to high school with him. Yeah, man. David Fickus plays a homeless veteran in it, That's and so um, awesome. his Liam Sullivan, who I'm sure you probably know, is yeah. in it. Yeah. Uh, and then this actor I know named Bob Bancroft that I've known for a long time was a really great character actor. And was in Parks four, and four characters. Four actors, yeah, four characters, five minutes. Uh, it's a comedy, and um, it How starts. How many days of shooting <laughs> did you do? One day. We did One the whole day thing of in shooting? a single day. Yeah. Wow. We had a day of prep to get the location ready, and then the next day we shot it all, and it was we shot outside of Palmdale. There's a movie ranch out there. And did you have to get like a set location? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I had to pay. Uh, I rented a location called Four Aces Movie Ranch. It's you don't realize it when you see it, but it's a, f- a fake gas station and market and motel and diner. It's like a big facility. It looks like something out of like the 30s. It right. just kind of got time forgot. But it's a. It's I saw all, a picture of but it on your Facebook. It's I fake, like, and you, and I, it's funny because I see it all the time now because they it use it gets used a lot for photo shoots and films and commercials and whatever else. So I see it all the time. But yeah, that's where we filmed that. So how did you choose that? I had a location manager that I knew that I had worked with before, and I, I said, "Here's what I need. I need a gas station in the middle of the desert." And, and he he's sent like, me two. Boom. He's like, here you go. Wow. <laughs> this is how much it costs to rent it. And, That's uh, crazy. And what's wild is it's in the desert, but it's high desert out there. And it was, we filmed in February. And when we got out there at sunrise, it was like 22 degrees outside. And it's supposed to be like a warm desert day in the film, you know. So it was just, the camera was freezing and... <laughs> Everything, but you know that's that's part of the that's obstacle. Filmmaking, and man. did you know yeah. that you, you only solving. had a day to shoot the whole thing? Yeah, if I ran over, wow. I was just I was screwed. Yeah, I was gonna go way over budget. And so let me ask you this too, just for any you know up and coming filmmakers, how did you kind of storyboard this or kind of you know generate a plan or an outline to know that you would get these shots? When did you shoot out of order? I assume you did, but how did you kind of put it all together? Uh, I'm a big believer in. I think when it's something short, like it's only five minutes, it's almost like a commercial. Right. I'm a big believer when it's something that short, and I was very exact in what I needed. I storyboarded every single shot at a time. Wow. I don't think that's always necessary. Um, but I, when I first moved to LA, I worked on some. I worked on like a Pepsi commercial, and I worked on a Toyota commercial. And I remember they had storyboarded everything because in, in commercials, a lot of times the ad agency or the creative agency has already decided exactly what they want you to get. Right. And it's like the director is just there to like check boxes off. <laughs> okay, we got that shot. Move on to the next one, and. So that's basically what I did. So I knew I could keep going back to my storyboard and be like, okay. And we did it mostly in order in so much as we could. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've never should, heard that. You try to shoot in order as much as you can. Right. And then, of course, depending – like the opening shot and ending shot were both outside on a big, with a camera on a big crane. So I shot those back to back. And how many cameras but, did you do for the whole shoot? Just one. Just, just one, one, just one camera. Yeah. Did you use the red camera? No, we used the Arri Alexa uh, Mini, which is common. Okay. I think they, I think they even use the Arri Alexa on Sol, but it's like the red. It's very similar. And how did you kind of choose what camera you wanted? Uh, I left it mainly up to my my DP. I've used mostly red for the past five or six years, um, but I've been wanting to use the Arri, and my DP that's what he wanted. So I was like, okay. If you so got, you asked you know, him. You were like, what do you? Yeah. If you, if you know somebody that has one, it was a good deal, then I'll try it out. That's awesome. Yeah. So when is it going to be released, or has it been released? Um, it's not released yet. It's pretty much done. Uh, we start submitting it to major festivals. So, you know, the way that works is festivals don't want, generally don't want things that are already they want out. It to be so yep. <laughs> the bummer is this thing's done, and I think it would be really cool for everybody to see on the internet. But I got to wait right. like a year. And you I'm, can't do you know, screening of it. Mm, yeah. Well, I could. I could do like a private screening. Private screening. Of it, but the people who ask me, "You need to scream." Like, well, it's five minutes long. So, what are we going to do? <laughs> right. We're going to watch it ten times. Like, right. You know, right. So it's not really. It's not that kind of thing. I'll just. I've sent private links out to people that worked on it so they can see, you know, what it looked like. But yeah. that's amazing. And yeah. what what was the catalyst to make you want to write this? I um, it's the the. The plot line essentially is this rich guy. It's it's a commentary on Trumpism and the the combination, the, the paradox of evangelicalism and and wealth right. in this country and how right. they, they're very contradictory. I'm already gonna love it, <laughs> but it's tell. a it's a comedic take on that. So it's right. not a pre, it's not too preachy. Right. But it basically, it's a rich guy pulls up in a red Ferrari to this gas station and he kind of blows off this homeless vet that's begging for money outside as he goes inside. And then when he goes up to the drink cooler and opens the cooler up, this golden light hits him and he hears this choir and this voice. And it's basically like reading them biblical quotes. Like, here's what you're supposed to be doing, buddy. Right. Like, Jesus said, get rid of all your money. Right. And follow him. You right. know? Uh, and so it was, it's, based, it's, fun, it's a very funny thing. Like, what the hell's happening? You know, thing. He, he repeatedly opens the door and gets different messages. Uh, and then, you know, <laughs> has a, and then it leads to him having, you know, an epiphany. Right. And, you know, he's a changed man when he, when he walks out. That is unreal. Yeah. And what was it? Was it just because you felt like you're older, you want to make a, a, a statement to kind of reflect on the times? 
Yeah, I mean, I, it was something that could be done quickly and, and compactly in one location. That's when you have a when you're trying to stay on a budget. That's important. Uh, of the times, very much I think is important for anything. There's right. festivals or getting it to you know people to want to watch it and spread it around on on the internet. Isn't it funny you know? when it comes to like religion and politics and the irony is that you've chosen two. <laughs> um, it you have to curb it in a way where it's like. I'm going to give you an opinion, but you're not going to really, you're not going to get such a bad taste that you feel like, oh, this is totally opposite than when you think. You yeah. can get this kind of compassionate side where you, you can empathize. Yeah, How and did I think, you dance on that line? Well, there's a, twist, there's, a, there's a twist at the end that I won't give away that kind of gives you a more grounded explanation for what he's experienced. Right. You know, so it, there's kind of like something in it for everybody. It's not a religious film. It's not an anti-religious film. Whoever watches it can take away what they want to take away from it. And you know? how did you also decide to do a short uh, versus, you know, something longer versus a series or, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, in money, I mean, you can shoot a short for thousands of dollars or you can shoot you know if you shoot a, if i were to shoot a feature for that same amount of money yeah i could do it but it would look terrible right you know what i mean it wouldn't have any stars in it well so what's thing the too is you like know a lot of like the trend right now are people are doing minute shorts you oh know, yeah they do like a minute short mm-hmm. and then they'll do another minute short and another minute short yeah and it's interesting that you you decided to make this complete thought which yeah. i love I, yeah. I mean i just i honestly the funny thing about you know the band playing Sundance every year, I actually stumbled into the shorts at Sundance, and I saw the short for Whiplash. And oh, then the next wow. year, I actually saw the movie Whiplash, Amazing. the opening showing of it, and I was I just looked at the picture and I was like, this looks like that short that I loved uh-huh. from last year. What are the chances? Let me see if it's the same thing. Maybe they got funding to make a whole movie. And then I saw that movie, and then Damien Chazelle came out and talked about the short. That's awesome. You got, got to see the, the pre and then the, the actual, the I galaxy, the, the whole process, right? the process unfold, and it made me really believe in A, Sundance, yep. B, the process of storytelling, yep. and C, just the idea that somebody could take a small idea, create it into a large spectrum, and then I watched that little engine that could go all the way to the Oscars. And it just blew my mind because yeah. I, I saw it. I literally saw one of the scenes. I don't know if you've seen this short of Whiplash. I haven't, no. But um, it would be, you should check it out yeah, because yeah. It, what was so cool about it was it's one of the scenes in the movie. And they basically put all their funding into this one scene knowing they wanted to make a bigger movie mm-hmm. and then got the funding at Sundance and then continued making the movie. And that's what got them to where they are. And it's just like... Now he's got the he's got the people's eyes and ears to listen to the stories. You know what I mean. So I think it's amazing that you did this on your own. Yeah. I think it's incredible that you funded it on your own. Yeah. I think it's incredible that you wrote it and directed it. Yeah. Put the crew together. Yeah. All that business school. Exactly. You yeah. know, uh, conceptually put this into the space. That, you know, to create it. Yeah. Thanks. So that is. One of the most remarkable things, and it's it's got to kill you that it's just sitting, it's sitting on a hard be, drive, you know, waiting to be yeah, shown. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I know it was resonating with people so well right now, and I just have to be patient and deal with it. But on Whiplash, um, I'm friends with, and and even on my short, hired him. He's uh, the production sound mixer that recorded the sound wow. for Whiplash. Yeah. One, I think there were three of them. Yes. Uh, Tom Curley. He ended up winning the Oscar. That is crazy for Whiplash, and that was. That's you, nuts. I don't know if you know anybody who's won an Oscar before. No, I don't. I sure, certainly didn't right, before that right. moment. But I'd hired him before, and I remember um, I was in New York right before Whiplash came out, the feature. And I was in New York screening a documentary, and he just happened to, Tom Curley, the sound recorder, just happened to have saw like a Facebook post where I said, oh, I'm in New York. And he was like, hey, he texted me. He's like, hey, I'm here too. I'm here for a movie premiere. He's like, let's go grab a beer. So I met up with him, and he starts telling me, yeah, I, I worked on this film called Whiplash. And I remember and he... like, what? No, they didn't know anything really about it, yet I kind of heard oh some God. stuff. And he goes, yeah, he's like, I think it's really going to be a big thing for my career. <laughs> he's like, it I really was, think it's... It was, he's like, it it's, I think it's the one I've been waiting for. No, and no. then, he, like, a few months later, he's on stage at the Oscars, or a year later, whatever, accepting and, and the And the Oscar, funny thing yeah. is, it's amazing to see what a short can do. So, like, yeah. the other question I had in relation to your short, do you see this short being a two-hour movie, or do you think it'll lead into, you know, catapult you into another realm to create a two-hour story related to it? Yeah, I mean, you could always expand pretty much any story into a full-length, adding characters and plot and whatever. Um, it's weird, uh, my agency, they saw an early cut, and that was the first thing they asked. 
so we should talk about like a full length version of this. Yeah, right. I was like, wow, I didn't even really thought about that for this story, but maybe. A lot of film, I mean, I would say probably most filmmakers started out making either shorts or music videos or commercials. Right. All short form stories. content. Stories. Short stories. Exactly. Because, again, it's what you can afford to do early right. on or it's what you can get hired to do with less experience. Right. You know, not likely that they're going to hire someone right out of film school and give them a $10 million feature right. film. You Mick know? G. That's all he got discovered. He did <laughs> yeah. music videos. Exactly. Yeah. Venture time. started out in yeah. that way. Uh, uh, Michelle Gondry. All those guys started out making music videos and when we still made music videos right and commercials yeah well let me ask you this too mike where can people find you if they want you to direct a story or an idea or if a film company wants to hire you where can people find you sure uh marauder works is the name of my company that's m-a-r-a-u-d-e-r and i'm at marauder works Dot com it's is not my website. Works, people are dumb. It's not with an X. <laughs> w O R K S. <laughs> and it's not with an E. And it's not too. with an E, exactly. <laughs> well, Mike, you've been a tremendous guest. What a fascinating interview. I've done a lot of interviews in the last five years, and I, hands down, this was definitely one of my favorite because I don't say that on the air that much, but <laughs> man, you just opened so many doors with solving Tupac's murder, solving Biggie's murder, and then showing a, just a breadth of spectrum in your content. Mm-hmm. So, man, we wish you the best. Murder Rap is your documentary. Unsolved is the USA Network film series, uh, yeah, film series, mm-hmm. and then we have Demon House, yeah, which is out on Google Play, and it was the number one documentary on Google Play for ten straight weeks. It just fell five, off, five. which is crazy. That's awesome. Which I didn't know was possible to be like number one for that long. Well, I I'll, be, we had, I'll like, be watching all. I of thought these. we had like broken it, but yeah, it's scary as hell. I'll watch it in a dark room at like midnight. That's wild. Yeah. Well, Mike, you're gonna have to come back. Right. Because I want to know yeah. what happens with this short, and I want to know what's what's up with the future for you. So, absolutely, thank you again for being a guest on Wake Up Hollywood. Anytime. We'll see you guys next week.